Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled Manly, was given on August 5th, 2018 by Jason Shea in the series Ruth, Fully Devoted. So there's uh, there's quite a bit of, uh, there's a little bit of reading today. It's, um, we're going to go through a whole, almost chapter and a half. I know, right? right. Boom, we're going to do it. Uh, so maybe some volunteer readers that are not afraid to project their voices. You're, you're volunteering, I'm not. Oh, I am. Oh, you are volunteering. Yeah. You're in. Okay. So you're going to do uh, 214 through 23. Okay. And then I need someone else. Okay, Scott, you're going to do three, uh, one, two, uh, one through ten. And then one more person. Uh, Sam, you're going to do three, eleven through four. Um, six. Chapter three, verse 11 through chapter four, verse six. That's it. That's the one. All right. Let's do it. You have the floor, nice and loud. Thank you. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvester, she, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some leftover. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and not and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and mounted to an epath. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord blessed him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative, and he is our guardian redeemer. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. 
Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and covered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the cornered garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. His kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who I am more closely related, who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. <clears throat> so she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, for I and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Amen. All right. Let's go for it. How's everyone doing? Good. Yeah. So, um... So this is our uh, sixth week in Ruth, and there's only four chapters. So we're uh, we're just we're just tearing this thing up. Um, and there's I think I could spend a year on this. It's, there's just so much going on. And I um, so for you, I hope that in this series, you've been able to see the hand of God, um, hopefully more at work in your lives, and hopefully you've been able to draw some parallels to your own lives um, in this this profound ancient story. So what I wanted to do just for a minute, I want to recap 
for those who have maybe missed a, a Sunday or two or three, or I know summertime, it's just like, you know, you just, it's a different rhythm. So uh, I'm gonna just kinda just give, a, give us a little snapshot of um, what we've covered so far. So uh, we began the story by diving into the political backdrop of what was happening. Um, and the, what, we, what we saw, what we learned was in the, in the, in the beginning of the story, uh, there was this phrase, in the, in the days when the judges ruled. And what we learned from this was that Israel had fallen off the tracks in their pursuit of God. So God sends um, all of these leaders, which is the book of Judges, um, to, to help put them back on path. But is, Israel essentially rejects them and throws away the opportunity uh, to kind of get back on track. And so they, they kind of continue on their own way and there's some kind of crazy, horrific stories that happen that illustrate, sorry, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm waving because there's a bee around or something around me. Um, sorry, podcast listeners. Um, so uh, we also learned that in this ancient story, it was most likely read during the post-exilic period so that's kind of an important time in the history of Israel because it's, it's a time when Israel was um, conquered by the Babylonians. And so uh, the Babylonians had taken over Israel and essentially deported them off and scattered them throughout much of the, um, the ancient Near East, the Middle East. And in the, in the process, what, they do, what happens to Israel is they lose their land, they lose their culture, they lose their sort of normal way of life. And then um, once the Babylonians are captured, then Israel is invited to come back to their land, uh, to their home. And along the way, these scattered lost people essentially lose some of their identity. Um, and this is important because this book is not, is not used as a, a love story with a romantic ending, you know, even though it does end with a marriage and a baby. <laughs> Uh, but it's a story about how to return, to return home that has changed its political, economic, and social landscape. So whether you're leaving home under extreme circumstances like migrating because of a famine or an oppressive government or whatever, or you're simply just moving because of jo a job or you're starting college somewhere else, um, that, that leaving of home is part of the human story, isn't it? We have all left home at one point or another. So we've been following these three characters, um, these three individuals who are essentially strangers uh, to one another. So we began with Naomi. She's the post-childbearing widow who had lost her husband, um, her sons, and her home uh, because of a famine in her land. So she's forced to migrate to another land one that's unfamiliar, we, we, we know that it's Moab, uh, which is enemy territory, it's on the other side of the Dead Sea. Um, and, and then she discovers, Naomi discovers that she can go back home um, after she's been in Moab for like 10 or 15 years uh, because she gets word that the famine is gone and that there's bounty now. And then we, we've been talking, we've learned about Ruth, who is a Moabite. She's Naomi's daughter-in-law who is tethered to Naomi. And she chooses to make this covenant with Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will not leave you. I mean, it's, it's this 
contract almost um, of this beautiful picture of Ruth committing herself to this person and to almost always take care of her because her mother-in-law is, is, is quite old at this point. So, and you can say Ruth is a new convert if you want to look at it that way. So she is converted from being a Moabite to essentially an Israelite, to the God of Israel. She's someone who in the heart of, is in the heart of loss, in the heart of grief. She's found herself as an immigrant now in another country. So we got two different stories of, of people migrating to different parts of, of the world. And I guess you can say she's left home, her home now to find a new life. And then last time we gathered for worship, we were introduced to Boaz. I just love the name Boaz. Um, we should name a kid Boaz. <laughs> he's, a, he's a man of wealth, a man of uh, person of privilege, power, influence. Uh, he seems to be committed to the way of God and caring for the orphan, the widow, foreigner, and he shows a blessing on Ruth, the Moabite. So I want to begin by asking just a question. Who do you identify with at this point in the story? Ruth, Naomi, or Boaz? And this isn't like gender specific. I mean, you could, you know, identify with any of them. So if you're a, if you identify with Boaz, let's see the Boazes here. We have one Boaz. I'm curious to know what, <laughs> what is this about, honey? Um, what about Ruth? Okay, so a couple of Ruths. Uh, okay. And Naomi? Okay, some, some Naomi's in here. Uh, what about Obed? That was like this other person. Nope. Okay, no Obeds. Um, yes. So I want to go through a little bit of background. I want, to, I want to talk to you for a minute about something called Leverite marriage. Yes, big word, right? Um, it's an important concept in the Old Testament, and it's very important to the context of this story. So the essence of this particular law that comes out of the book of Leviticus or the book of Deuteronomy, all comes in, which is in the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, um, the essence of this law is about carrying on the family name. And so if you are uh, an Israelite who's married and your husband dies, um, like Naomi, it tells, the law says that you are then to go to the brother of that dead husband and basically he is required now by law to fulfill the marital duties of his dead brother. Are you with me? Yeah. Um, and then the hope is that uh, that new couple will have a son, and then that son will be able to carry on the family name. Now, if that brother dies, then you go to the next brother. <laughs> and if that brother dies, then you go to the next brother. I don't know how many brothers there are in these families, but that's, that's how the tra trajectory goes. And so the idea is that you're carrying on the family name, and it's not really a choice for these, this brother it's, it's an expectation that you're going to step into this family role to fulfill the vows that your first brother made if that person dies. So where this gets interesting is that Ruth was married to an Israelite, but Ruth is a Moabite. So technically she's not bound by the Israelite law, or the Israel law, the law of Israel. But in this case, perhaps because I think she made a covenant with the God of Yahweh, with her mother-in-law, and I would argue she's led by the Spirit to follow the suit of God's law that she has now taken on. So why is this important? Thanks for asking. 
because what we observe in the life of this small encounter between Boaz and Ruth, I believe reflects the nature of God and point towards Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is I especially want to talk with the men about what Christ calls men towards as followers of Jesus that is countercultural and radically different than what the world tells men they are supposed to be about. Now, if you're a lady or a woman, you might think, okay, it's my week to check out. I'm going to stare at the, I don't know, stare at something. And, um, but I want to implore you all to just be present this morning and not only to think about the role of men in our culture, but how you might perpetuate male stereotypes that conflict with the way of Christ. So for some reason, I'm a, I'm a bit nervous this morning. Um, I gave the sermon once already, and I was a little bit nervous there. I'm still nervous for some reason. And I think it's just because it's a little bit outside of my comfort talking about male masculinity. Um, but I felt it's necessary to share, so uh, I'm going for it. We'll just we'll see where it goes. And um, there's a word that's... What's that? Oh. Support you. Support Okay. I got your vote. Thank you. Um, gold stars. So uh, there's a word floating around right now, feminism. It's like, it's always all over the place. And um, it's a word that I think, it's a really important word. And I think it's a word that um, can become an idol and sort of take the place of God in people's lives. Um, and as I observe our culture at play, I think um, masculinity can also become an idol that can be worshipped. Are you with me? So, I want to ask another question. What stereotypes does our society suggest about the role of men? Just what are the, the norms, the script? They're in charge. They're, okay. you know, bigger, stronger. In charge, bigger, stronger. Uh, other. The breadwinner. Breadwinner, okay. Fat old people. Fat old people. Wow, okay. The, the lesson from our youth... Okay. What else? What are some other stereotypes? Unallowed to show their emotions. Unallowed to show their emotions. Yeah. So to keep the emotions inside. Yep. What else? What's that? Someone else? Violence. What? Violence. Violence. Yeah. Dominating. Dominating. So the script that I think our culture tells that tells men to live into, says men are to be strong, powerful, courageous, leaders, addicted to Monday night football and NASCAR. And, and I'm, not, I'm not arguing that if you like those things, it's not a bad thing. That's not what this is about. Um, just the stereotype tells me that I should. And if I don't, somehow I'm less of a man. Are you with me? Um, the, stereo, the script tells us that men are in control. The script says men get paid more than women and have more upward mobility in jobs than women and can use their manhood however they wish. The script says men's voices are the most important and they are to have the last word. The script tell, says men, we are more privileged, but we don't know it, which makes, us, makes it a privilege. The script says we are supposed to be warriors, like you said, soldiers, protectors, the script talks about patriarchy. It's alive and well. 
But I don't see that so clearly in this story and in the story of God. I think that what we see from Moaz, Moaz, (laughs) new word, Moaz. (laughs) What do you get with Ruth and Moaz? Never mind, sorry. I think that what we see from Boaz is he shifts the script. He shifts the narrative about role in men, the role of men, especially with how he interacts with Ruth. Point number one, Boaz goes, goes from being a powerful protector, that's what the script says, to a powerful advocate. An advocate stands up for people without standing over them. Gentlemen, the, an advocate stands up for people without standing over them. So think about this juxtaposition between Ruth and Boaz. Boaz is rich, Ruth is poor. Boaz is male, Ruth is female. Boaz is a Jew, Ruth is a Gentile. Boaz is a native to Israel, Ruth is a immigrant. Boaz is valued, Ruth is a barren widow to be discarded. Boaz is a master, Ruth is a servant, Boaz has privilege, Ruth is gleaning off the land. No privilege. The norm for Boaz and the script the culture told him to follow with Ruth was to dismiss her, to ignore her, to rebuke her, perhaps abuse her for violating the boundaries of land. I mean, think, she she went onto a a foreigner's uh, territory, his land, knowing nothing about it. The script would say, that's not okay. This encounter defied the cultural norms and I think the implications are astounding. Are you with me so far? Yes. Okay, we're gonna get there. So Boaz is not held captive to the dominant definitions of masculinity. See, an an advocate of God stands up for the people, not over them. So think for a minute of of the New Testament, the story of Jesus, the Savior of the world, God in flesh, God incarnate. So does Jesus power over people or does he advocate for them? Who are we called to follow? Christ. Christ. Jesus is an advocate for the entire world. His presence, his crucifixion, it was the grandest of postures of what it meant to advocate for humanity. The grandest of postures. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Gentlemen, masculinity is not about power over, it's about advocacy for. It's what Christ did and we are called to emulate Christ. So, quick story. So I remember this time that I worked at this church in Southern California. It was a big church. And, um, and I was on the leadership there and uh, I actually worked, you know, employed by them. And uh, um, in this particular instance, there was something going on in the church that um, it was kind of a big deal. The issue isn't important right now, but um, I remember sitting in this, this room at this church and um, for upwards of maybe two hours. And what I noticed, there wasn't any women present, which was a bit unusual for this church. And after a discussion about this topic, 
one of the one of the the leaders, one of the elders there, said, "Gentlemen, you know this this information is not for women's ears." Now, if you knew anything about the relationship that I have with Bethany, um, you know we firmly believe in lifting up the other person's voice. I want to know her opinion and her perspectives about her situation because her voice matters and is just as important as mine. So I left this meeting thinking about the comment and like deep inside, I just like felt something was off about it. But the, but the narrative told me that I w it was not for her ears and I was to keep this information from her uh, because her opinion didn't matter. Um, somehow she was, she couldn't handle it. And so she, I get home and Bethany says, oh, how did it go? Because she knew we were going to this meeting. And I said, it's just not for you to hear. <laughs> right? No, I did. I remember, I just remember like this very clear image of telling her that. And it was just like, I, my heart was not connected to it at all. I was just saying these words because I felt like I had to live into this like power thing. I was giving into it. Somehow her opinion didn't hold any kind of weight or not as much weight as mine. And I immediately just knew that I was not following the Spirit's leading. I gave into it. So how do we advocate? So a good friend of mine who comes to this church, he's not here today, he's, he talks about something called the management team. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> our, uh, our lovely um, uh, Russ talks about the management team that lives inside of us. I know we all chuckle, but we all like chuckle because of the truth in it, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live within us. So Jesus told his disciples that we would do even greater things than he, and that he would leave us a advocate that would lead us. We have the greatest advocate ever to lead us, to advocate for and not to power over. So I think, I think the Holy Spirit is alive and well in the story of Boaz. And I think it's the Spirit's guiding that gives Boaz the courage to move beyond the law to follow the spirit of the law. Like there's the law and then there's like the spirit of the law. So like Jesus, you think about that time where he, um, he heals someone on the Sabbath. The law was you don't do anything on the Sabbath. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. The law and the spirit of the law, are you with me? Yeah. So Boaz, point number two, Boaz is courageous. So, but not courageous in the way the script tells men to be courageous, which I think is strong or silent, self-reliant, pack down our emotions, like you said, to be independent. But instead, I think Boaz's courage is about vulnerability, about being empathetic and communal and dependent so what does our society tell us about, what does our culture tell us about what vulnerability is? What's, what's a word that comes to mind when you think of vulnerability? Weakness, yes. What's that? I think strength. You think strength, okay, yeah, you're, you're, you're already there. Like, but but the, 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 the script says vulner, to be vulnerable, to show who you are, is to be weak, for men especially. So the kind of vulnerability that Boaz shows is not weakness. I, I'd argue, in fact, it's the opposite. The kind of vulnerability that God calls his people toward as shown through Boaz is the courage to be seen for who you really are. So Boaz was supposed to demonstrate masculine strength towards Ruth, 
to be a leader, to be strong, to be a protector, to, to disregard her. She's a widow. She's a foreigner. But she was a Moabite. She was considered barren. Two points against her, barren Moabite, not things you want to be in Israel. So for Boaz to put himself out there, not only for Ruth, but also towards others in his family and the elders of the community requires great risk, courage, and vulnerability. Think about it. Think about what was on the line. This, this man is supposed to be influential, powerful person who, um, who, who is supposed to carry on the family name. But what do we know about Ruth? That she's barren and that she's a Moabite. She's in enemy territory. And yet, what do we find that he is doing? He is laying himself on the line. He is literally showing who he is by telling these elders and the next of kin, this person is important and as important as me. In fact, the word that he uses, so amazing. Okay, sorry. Um, Okay, so in verse... uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 11. Here, you have your Bibles real quick? Actually, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Go there first. I'm going off script a little bit now, but that's okay. Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. All right. Uh, are we all kind of there? All right. Uh, now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing. Okay? That word, standing, a man of standing, is the word hail. H, C-H-A-Y-I-L. Okay? It means, it's almost a military term. It's, it's strong, it's, uh, it's of worth, it's value, it's, uh, it's influential. Now go, to, now go to chapter 3, verse 11. The author is doing a play on words here. It's genius. Are you there? Chapter 3? Yeah. I don't know why the translators chose this, this phrase. It's not as great, but it's, it's still the same word. Uh, the, la- the end of chapter, 11, or chapter 3, verse 11. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do as you ask. All the people of my town will know that you are a woman of noble character. Same exact word, Hail. That's cool. It's amazing. Because the reason it's amazing is because root or because um, too many names. Boaz, <laughs> Moaz, uh, Boaz is 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 she, he is, like I said to be vulnerable is to show yourself. He's showing what he really thinks about this person, and he invites other people into it. So he's like, okay. He invites all the elders. There's this Moabite. And he's like, look, guys, this is the right thing to do. I know the law says that. This is the spirit of law. He changes their perspective on it because he puts himself out there. Are you with me? I want to say, I believe vulnerability is about dependence on God, about dependence on the spirit of God. As men, I think the script tells us we're supposed to be independent and not dependent on others. I can do this myself. I don't need your help. The picture that we get with Boaz is he wants, 
to show partnership with, not strength over. He's showing his dependence with other people. He's showing his dependence with God. He's showing his dependence with, um, with the Spirit. I know it doesn't say the Spirit there, but I think the Spirit's in there. I'm just saying. So two things. So masculinity shifts the script from being a powerful protector to a powerful advocate for men. Masculinity shifts the script from being strong, silent, packing away emotions, and independent to being courageous, dependent on God, and vulnerable towards, towards Christ. Was Christ vulnerable? Yes. Yeah. How was Christ vulnerable? By going against everything that What's that? By going against everything at that time. Okay. Okay. You know, acknowledging the woman as well. Mm-hmm. You know, inviting people to, to you know, disciple and teach them and heal them. What else do you see? Yes. He came to serve. So vulnerability and humility go hand in hand. But I almost see, I almost see like a, an area of Christ protection over people as well. I don't think that protection is necessarily a negative thing. No, no, no. But uh, like where he says he lays down his life for his friends, mm-hmm. and there's something really beautiful about that area of of his of Christ lays down his life, willing to step into any situation for mm-hmm. for the other. He lays down his life for the other. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I was going to say. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So um, tell me what people are thinking now, just about anything you've heard, things that are sticking out, uh, you're wrestling with, a question, anything. I see a parallel between what you're teaching us in Ruth and Boaz and the story of Jesus when he's going to, um, to heal a little girl. And on the way, a woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And, and so she's unclean. First, she's a woman in that culture. And second, she's unclean because of the bleeding. And she goes up. She shouldn't go anywhere near a guy or anybody, especially a man. And she goes up and she says, if I just touch his clothing, I might be healed. And she does that. And then Jesus' response is turning around and freaking out, yelling at her, and how dare you do that? And that's against the law and all this. He calls her daughter. Yeah. He, he says, you're, because of your faith, you're healed. Right. It's this, like, this embrace, this, this advocacy, this healing that happens. So I see a parallel. Yeah. Teaching and, and that's yeah, right on. What else is stirring? Well, I think, I think it's really neat because what, what you see is that the is that there's not like one form of, like one narrative of masculinity. It, and I think so often in, in our society it tells us, well this is what it looks like to be a man. And what we see through Christ is, is like, and through Boaz, it's not just that you're a powerful protector, it means that you're also a powerful advocate. And so, it, there's, there's, no, um, there's no definition that a person has to step into to be, Received by society and right. with their with their manliness or whatever. And yeah, I think that the, the same is true for femininity. I know that's not what we're talking about today, but yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm saying both sides too. It's the yeah. same with femininity. Where, yeah. You know, if you can't step into the role of what society sees you as, what you're supposed to be as a woman, especially in a traditional home, then it's that you're not worthy or you're not right. those things. And for a man too, I mean, genetically, I mean, you can argue, but there's differences typically, and but yet still using those, using those for the way that God intended them, and not the way that society has, you know, taken them to the other spectrum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good. It almost sounds like, if you touch the name, it almost sounds sometimes like mothers. Because in a sense, it's like, like when Jesus talks about, you know, I'd like to take all my children under my wings and things like that. It sounds like the hand Mm-hmm. And this whole idea of masculine, feminine, you know, roles and things like that, it's like, compared to what you call it, mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. fathering or whatever it is, yeah. advocating, advocating, mm-hmm. yeah. protecting in those types of things. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I kind of think of it as co-nurturing. Co-nurturing. Yeah. I like that. It's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Well, I want to say, uh, just before we go into communion, if, um, you know, if you, this was a weird message for me to, like, give for some reason, um, and I still don't know why, but it just was, so... If you want to chat afterwards or there's, like, something that didn't sit right or, you know, any of that stuff, like, I totally love having conversations and um, about, you know, where, where people are at. And I just encourage you to hang out with me or someone else if there's something you're wrestling with. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Why did, why did Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, there's some different perspectives on on that. I mean, the uncovering of feet. Um, so some think that it was, um, you know, some people suggest that that's what was happening. It, it, I would not. I wouldn't say seduce in the way that like. Not, not in a, it, it was a, a proposal. Yeah. You think of it more like, a, as a, some people think more of it like as a marriage proposal. You are the next of kin to me, so therefore we need to get married. Um, I saw it, and some other people saw it as like he resisted, and he said, because he said right afterwards, he said, well, I'm actually not your next of kin. There's someone else who's the next of kin. And so I saw restraint in it. Um, What's that? Cold feet, right? It was the middle of it was the middle of summer in Arizona there, so we didn't have cold feet. Um, but yes, there, there there isn't there isn't a unanimous like this is what it is. It's yeah. Vulnerable. Because that would be a shameful thing to do. Yeah. So if you did not have trust, you did not feel like that person was trustworthy. 
you could show yourself vulnerable and do something that would be humiliating or embarrassing or socially unacceptable yeah. in front of that person. So she was therefore making herself vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Here I am basically naked before you, you know, accept my offerings of myself to you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's certain, a certain kind of vulnerability. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff about the threshing floor and where it was and how risky that would have been to go down to this area. Because the threshing floor would have been like, imagine a big area like this and they have all the, the wheat and the chaff and they separate all the stuff right here and the wind would come through and blow it away. And, and it wasn't a typical place that you would go and kind of have a marriage, have a marriage proposal. So, and as a, as a foreigner, you know, you definitely wouldn't want to put yourself out there. So... Well, and I love, I love what the word that you said was restraint, because I think that that's, like, one of the fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit that I feel like I miss out on a lot, and I feel like our society does, uh, is self-control. And just to, like, see this, you know, you're doing this character study on Boaz, and it's just another layer of him stepping into that space of self-control and restraint when, when perhaps society then, but definitely society now, would be like, oh, yeah, that's yours, take it, you know, and, because he showed the next of kin, but if he, he had slept with her and she got pregnant, then he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been, um, yeah, he wouldn't have been following the, the Leverite marriage because you're supposed to go to the next kin first. Um, so there's certainly a lot there and there's a lot of speculation, but I, I do think the Spirit gives us, I like to call it theological imagination. So um, to try to help fill in the blanks, but we only know so much, obviously, because there's certain details that were left out and there's certain details that were emphasized, like why did why did why did uh, Boaz choose that word Hael for Ruth when he was also Hael, you know, that, that's not the word you would have typically chosen for her, a woman, um, in her status. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, continue loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving each other.